Hey, you're, you're listening to Cassidy is Alive. In this week's podcast, we are learning all about some of history's worst professional wrestlers and pro wrestling gimmicks. Some of these are going to be very funny, others downright embarrassing. It's a fun show this week, my friends, and I will see you in just a moment. Welcome, welcome. Cassidy is alive. Episode 18. Oh my god, 18 fucking episodes. Where do I find the energy? I mean, seriously. Honestly, I don't. (laughs) I don't find the energy. I just sort of will myself to behind schedule so bad this week. Oh my god. That Sunday episode, a lazy Sunday, probably not (laughs) the best idea because I am just drained. And as you can tell, hopefully you can tell, and it doesn't just show up halfway into the podcast, my voice is just bleh today. Oh my god. I, I couldn't hold off recording any longer, unfortunately. I still have to edit and just... I apologize for my voice. It's going to be uh this week. It'll be better next week, I hope. There's just nothing I can really do about it right now. And I apologize. But this week, oh my god, what an interesting topic. We move from MMA last week right back into professional wrestling. Terrible pro wrestlers. Terrible pro wrestling gimmicks. It's an interesting co- topic, trust me. Even if you're not into pro wrestling, you should get a kick out of some of these. Because some of these are really, really funny. Others, kind of tragic. <laughs> we'll, we'll just say. There's a couple in there that I'm sure, even if you don't care about wrestling, you will find interesting. I, oh my god, I need to stop running my hands through my hair. I've just been doing it non-stop for the last couple of days and it's all oily and just blah. I have to stop that. But you don't care about any of that. You don't care about me touching my hair, any of that bullshit. So without further ado, let's just start getting things rolling. So how about the weekly update? Yes? Yes. Let's do that. Cue the, um, I guess it counts as music. Whatever you want to call it, cue it. All of you listen up! There was... As always, thank you, Mr. Tony Schiavone. The first bit of news this week is truly shocking, terrible news. The future of this podcast and its niche audience is in jeopardy. The last regular episode, Rooten to the Core, has been banned in the great nation of North Korea. The DPRK has banned 
the Boss Rutten episode. And every day thereafter, more and more videos from the channel have been banned in North Korea. This is just devastating. Like, I can never grow in that style, oh my god. I don't even why, I don't even know why. Why am I getting notifications about this? I don't... North Korea. Okay. Fair enough, YouTube. Fair enough. <laughs> Whatever. Oh my god, the next. What the hell? On Sunday night, at New Japan Pro Wrestling's Sakura Genesis event, Will Ospreay defeated Kota Ibushi to win the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. I was not expecting this outcome at all. Will Ospreay, I have been watching this guy evolve since, oh god, I think 2014, maybe to early 2015, years now. And he is now the IWGP World Heavyweight Champion. The belt is still ugly. <laughs> I mentioned this in the Sunday episode. This is an ugly fucking belt. But Will Ospreay is now the firstborn UK champion. And that's including the lineage of the prior IWGP heavyweight title. <clears throat> My guess is he's going to drop this to Kazuchika Okada within 100 days. But holy shit, right? Will Ospreay is the champion. And that's, that's pretty fucking big, really. Lastly, I have been watching yet more <laughs> One Piece. Really trying to get through the Wano arc and get up to date with the anime. I've been up to date with the manga for a while, trying to get up to date with the anime. And I'm loving it so far. Yes, the manga is better. <laughs> far better, but whatever. I do enjoy the anime, and I'm very much enjoying the Wano arc thus far. I'm only about 20-odd episodes in. Not too far in, but I'm loving it. I, I might, come to think of it, I might actually do something One Piece-centric soon. I don't know. We'll see. We will see. And that's actually it. I don't have much to update you on at all this week. Like I said, in retrospect, that Sunday episode might not have been a good idea. I don't have a lot to talk about when it comes to my week now. Well, whatever. The Minecraft segment uh, is coming up towards the end of the show. So, you know, we'll, we'll save that till the end. We're making very good time right now. So let's just get right into the meat of today's episode. Transition. Professional wrestling when it's good it's fucking great but when it's bad holy shit is it bad today we're going to look at some of the worst that pro wrestling has to offer some of it will be hilarious and others will be very painful it's just the tip of the iceberg for today guys there are so many that I could discuss that I am leaving this wide open for a sequel. Before we jump right into it, there are two points that I want to make clear. First, yes, it is well established that I'm not much of a fan of WWE, nor their melodramatic style of pro wrestling. But that, you should just know, this is not 
a shit on WWE episode. If that's what you're expecting, I'm sorry to disappoint. The second, while we will be looking at some awful wrestlers, that is to say, in-ring performers, if you will, some of these may actually be quite talented wrestlers, <clears throat> though they're stuck with an awful gimmick. For those few unaware, a gimmick can be thought of as a character. You know, the wrestler, the character that that wrestler is portraying. Think of that as their gimmick. We'll start with an example of the sort. This is Glenn Jacobs. Since 1997, he has famously portrayed WWE's Kane. You're likely familiar with this gimmick, the brother of The Undertaker. He summons fire, it's kind of a whole supernatural thing. I am not the biggest fan, personally, but by general consensus, Kane is a beloved WWE character. Of Glenn Jacobs, he is not an outstanding wrestler, never was by any means, though he is regarded as safe and very easy to work with, far from a bad wrestler. So, he's been Kane since 1997, but he debuted in 1992. In those five years, he had some pretty bad gimmicks. One of them was Isaac Yankum, the evil dentist. It's exactly as it sounds. He was an evil dentist that for some reason chose to become a professional wrestler. Introduced in 1995 as the personal dentist of one Jerry the King Lawler, Isaac Yankum had a brief run where he served as mostly a proxy, extending the length of the ongoing Lawler-Bret Hart feud. Isaac Yankum faded into the ether by the end of 1996, and then Glenn Jacobs became Fake Diesel. September of 1996, the next gimmick of Glenn Jacobs was this guy, Fake Diesel. So, just to make this long story kind of short, in the 1990s, Vince McMahon's major competitor was Ted Turner's WCW. Two of the WWF's major players jumped ship to Turner's company. They were Scott Hall, known in WWF as Razor Ramon, and Kevin Keck What a Bitch Nash, who was Diesel. You may see where this is going. WWF still owned the Razor Ramon and Diesel gimmicks. They still own those trademarks. So, here you go. Fake Razor Ramon, and more importantly for us, fake Diesel. The worst part of all of this is that it was never clear what the deal exactly was. The story would often flip between these guys being imposters and being the real deal. And it fucking failed. The fake Diesel thing is so poorly remembered that modern WWE portray it as a failed attempt to replace these characters. Even though, like I said, that wasn't really all that was going on here. They were trying to have their cake and eat it too. Nowadays they represent it as, you know, we just tried to replace them, and it failed. They were sort of playing into the fact that they might be imposters, but not really, kind of doing both. It, it, was, it was horrible television, that's all we'll say. About one year later, 
Kane debuted, and Glenn Jacobs was made for life. But he actually had one more gimmick that I'd like to talk about. This was before his WWF run, before Fake Diesel, and before Isaac Yankum, the evil dentist. This was in 1990. <laughs> I'm sorry. This was in 1992. <laughs> okay. Fuck it. This is the Christmas creature. <laughs> the Christmas creature. This was a very short-lived monster gimmick that Glenn Jacobs portrayed in Jerry Jarrett's USWA. Take a look at this. Take a good, hard look at this. And just bear in mind that it was called The Christmas Creature. Oh my god. <laughs> Let's move away from that and talk about something a little more recent. This lady is Jenna Maraska. She won Survivor in 2003 and was a host of Survivor or something. It, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Who cares? The point is, Jenna Maraska was famous for being on that show and connected to that show, Survivor. In 2009, she would work with the wrestling company TNA, now known as Impact Wrestling. Her one career match came at that year's Victory Road pay-per-view, where she and Mel had quite possibly the worst professional wrestling match of all time. Vincent Verhey of F4W described Jenna Maraska's ring entrance as not being designed to show off her ass, but to being designed to show off her ass hole. While his co-host, Brian Alvarez, declared this match minus five stars. <clears throat> Nothing! was good about Jenna Maraska. She could barely hit the ropes. I'm not sure if it is humanly possible to lack body language entirely, but Jenna Maraska may be living proof of that in this match. Her performance here at least makes me a believer in that possibility. And look at these slaps. Grounded <laughs> with a it it's a mount, you know, it passes for a mount on Charvel and look at these slaps. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Nothing against Jenna Maraska as a person. I'm sure she's lovely and I'm sure she's talented in her own right. But in pro wrestling, Jenna Maraska was a mistake. Let me take you back now to the weeks leading towards WWF Survivor Series 1990. Two new characters would debut at this event, which actually took place on Thanksgiving night. One of these characters was The Undertaker. Huge star. But we're not going to talk about The Undertaker. We're going to talk about the other character that debuted on that night. Arguably just as memorable. <laughs> this egg. This fucking egg. This egg was hyped up in those weeks leading up to Survivor Series. And it was clear that a new character would be hatching from this egg on pay-per-view. 
And on that fateful Thanksgiving night in Hartford, Connecticut, out came a fucking turkey. A fucking turkey. This was the gobbledy gooker. This is real. <laughs> this is actually real. It didn't last long, but this, in fact, actually happened. Wearing the costume was a wrestler by the name of Hector Guerrero. He's actually a very talented wrestler. You can see him in Smoky Mountain Wrestling or Mid-South. Very good wrestler. He actually couldn't see out of the hood on this costume and fell out of the ring at a Madison Square Garden live event. It's not known if any tapes of this exist. I'd like to see it because it'd be very funny. The Gobbledygook Girl was actually abandoned little over a month following the debut of this gimmick. Hector Guerrero actually portrayed another silly character. In the mid-80s NWA, he was Laser Tron. A laser tag gimmick. This true exists. Have you ever heard of Jumpin' Jeff Farmer? <laughs> We're going to take a look at an infamous wrestling promo. This is from, I have it written down, IPW. I'm unsure on the year. This is just some outlaw indie promotion from, I'm going to assume, the late 80s. Let's have a look at this. Earlier we talked to Jumpin' Jeff Farmer. Let's go now to that interview. Folks, there's Jumpin' Jeff Farmer. Jeff, a while back, what a match you had with Motley. Yep. <laughs> Probably the hardest match I ever had in my life. <laughs> but I don't like it when things aren't my, going my way. <laughs> Motley Cruz, you turn the tables on me. You turn okay. the tables in a wrong way. You've got me mad now. <laughs> I've stood around. I've listened to everything you had to say. I've did everything necessary. But when you turn around and you backstab me one way or another, and you treat, cheat me out of what's rightfully mine, that's when I get angry. <laughs> now I'm the one doing the challenging. I'm issuing a challenge to you, Motley Cruz. Get in the ring with me. <laughs> this time, I'm going full force. <laughs> Can you feel that charisma? <laughs> oh my god, the absolute state of it. Now, very little is known about this guy, Jumpin' Jeff Farmer. And he is often confused with another wrestler of a similar name, Jeffrey Farmer, who went on to be the imposter version of WCW's Sting. These two do honestly look very similar, and they do have the same name, basically, but they aren't actually the same person. Jumpin' Jeff, you tell me, are you two different people? Yep. And there it is. There it is, folks. This next guy. This is Mutsuhide Hirasawa. He is best known as New Japan Pro Wrestling's Captain New Japan. It's essentially Captain America, but NJPW. 
Hirasawa was the most lackluster wrestler in New Japan Pro Wrestling throughout the previous decade and up until his 2017 departure from the company. What pushed him over the edge as a memorably bad character was this uninspired, silly gimmick. I don't have much to say about Captain New Japan. He just really sticks out in memory. New Japan is a really good wrestling promotion. For the last number of years, it has been the top shelf when it comes to professional wrestling. This guy stuck out like a sore thumb. And let's just keep his memory alive. Remember, no matter how bad New Japan can seem at times, this guy is no longer on the roster. And that's a good thing now. That's a good thing. We're going to look now at a tag team. Greg Evans and Richard Sartain. They worked in Deep South as the Rock and Roll Rebels. They were just another ripoff of these fiery young rock and roll tag teams like the Rock and Roll Express. They formed as a tag team in 1987 and worked for Jody Hamilton at Deep South Wrestling until its closure in the following October. Evans and Sartain had nowhere to work following this, but they were quickly picked up by WCW, and they made their debut in 1989, repackaged with one of the finest, most ingenious gimmicks of all time. The Ding Dongs. They were clad in orange morph suits and covered in miniature bells. While one Ding Dong wrestled, the other rang a giant bell at ringside. Expecting a largely positive reaction, WCW EVP Jim Hurd was just... He was caught off guard by such a sudden and harsh rejection of the dim Ding Dongs, a gimmick of his own creation. The Ding Dongs were originally scheduled for a major push, though this was immediately nixed following just one match. The gimmick was retired by September, and both Evans and Sartain would leave WCW before year's end in 1989. The Dignongs are now considered among the worst gimmicks in the history of professional wrestling. And with good reason. Their gimmick is literally fucking bells. <laughs> what? Do you know what else I don't love? These fucking supernatural gimmicks. When a wrestler has some kind of mystical power or magical attributes... While I respect the hell out of him, I'm not even a very big fan of somebody like The Undertaker. And these supernatural gimmicks are fucking everywhere right now. Of course, we have Bray Wyatt in WWE currently. The Great Muta, he is a classic gimmick in Japan. And even AEW have Abaddon, whatever the hell she is supposed to be. Supernatural gimmicks are a reality of modern pro wrestling, and I've long since accepted that. I understand that it is a matter of personal taste, that there will be a difference of opinion. So as much as I'd like to talk 
about the concept of supernatural gimmicks in general, it just wouldn't be wise to. They aren't bad, per se. It's just not what I'd like to see. There is one, however, that I would very much like to discuss. <laughs> the Boogie Man. For those unfamiliar, this character is literally just the Boogeyman. Portrayed by Martin Wrights, he was a contestant on WWE's Tough Enough. This was a reality show where the winner received a WWE contract, and Wright appeared in the 2004 season. He was 40 at the time, though he claimed to be 30. After making it through the first round of eliminations, he was cut from the show after admitting to his real age. However, WWE officials must have liked him because he was invited to train at then developmental territory OVW. Excuse me for one minute. <clears throat> like I said, guys, I'm sorry, my voice is kind of ugh today. So, Martin Wright was invited to train at OVW, the developmental territory. This was where producer Jim Cornette gave him the gimmick of the Boogeyman. Though the Boogeyman was not actually a vil villainous character, the Boogeyman was a babyface, a good guy, and he would no-sell opponent's offense and just generally be a scary dude. But he was a good guy. Eventually, he was called up to WWE's SmackDown brand in July of 2005. Though injuries would delay things for a couple of months, some spooky vignettes aired in the meantime, the Boogeyman would appear in some unexpected places, and he spoke in nursery rhymes. It was... it was just complete fucking garbage. <laughs> By the time he was wrestling, the Boogeyman's matches mainly consisted of squashing his opponents and eating live worms. Actual live worms. They weren't like props, they were actual live worms. During a certain program, he even ate a woman's mole. Well, mm, I don't know if it was a mole, the thing growing out of Jillian Hall's face. The Boogeyman ate it. Boogeyman would have a match with Booker T at WrestleMania 22, which I actually gave this match a rare zero star rating. I don't give many of those. It has to be particularly bad. This match featured a spot where the Boogeyman made out with Charmel while having a mouth full of worms. And yes, that is the same Charmel who wrestled Jenna Maraska, lady we spoke about before. The Boogeyman stuck around for a few years. Inevitably, he began selling more and losing matches. They even introduced a little mini Boogeyman to try to extend the longevity of the gimmick. Um, <laughs> that's something they did. <laughs> but the gimmick died to death, and the Boogeyman was gone in 2009. Today, the Boogeyman is kind of polarizing. You know, some people love the gimmick. Some people like me fucking revile the gimmick. Though, he's not exactly a point of major discussion these days. In my memory, perhaps my least favorite gimmick of all time, 
probably number two, there's one we're going to discuss later that I definitely dislike more than the boogeyman, come to think of it. But this guy, oh my god, what a bad, just dumb idea. Very silly. Oh, quickly, before we move on, I'd like to make mention of this guy. This guy was Kevin Fawn. In WWE's relaunch of ECW, he had a vampire gimmick. He was a vampire. And that's what I want you to think about. Kevin. The vampire. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> Kevin is not a cool name for a vampire. I don't care if he's a pro wrestler. I don't care if his last name is Fawn. He's a fucking vampire named Kevin. Get, <laughs> get the hell out of here. Oh my god. So... The term gimmick. This is not actually exclusively referred to a wrestler's character. The term actually has a number of uses in pro wrestling jargon. And look, don't worry, I'm not about to go through all of them. Rather, I just want to focus on one related concept. <clears throat> the gimmick match. In brief, this is some kind of specialty match with a unique stipulation. Think of the classic steel cage match. That would be the most well-known. There's also the ladder match. That's a very popular one. This is when an object, most commonly a championship belt, is suspended above the ring, and the goal is to climb the ladder and retrieve it. That's how you win the match. It's a little more ridiculous than the steel cage, but hey, you can suspend your disbelief. Enough for that. You know, it's whatever. Some gimmick matches, however, are just fucking bad, right? Some are just outright ridiculous. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Before we head into the break, I wanted to talk about a few of the worst gimmick matches of all time, in my opinion. So, here is Cassidy's top five worst gimmick matches. Yay! <laughs> Number 5, the scaffold match. Now this is a really dumb idea. You have a tall scaffold, feet and feet above the ring, and the object is usually to throw an opponent off of it into the ring. <clears throat> it calling for an injury, really calling for an injury. Here's a clip of Jim Cornette falling from the scaffold and injuring himself. Mmm, kind of nasty, huh? Nasty. He broke... I don't know what he broke exactly, but he suffered a lot of damage. I probably should have pulled that, but he suffered a lot of damage from that. These matches are always slow. Once they get up fighting on the scaffold, there's not a lot of space. So it was never a really entertaining match. It was just a slow plotting match leading to one big spot. One big dangerous, big high fall. A very dangerous, stupid spot. This was never a good idea. At all. It's a spectacle for the sake of a spectacle. Just have a steel cage match. Fuck the scaffold. Number four. Anything on a pole. There is a wrestling writer, or was a wrestling writer, known as Vince Russo. He liked putting things on poles. You would have a chain on a pole. A chair on a pole, a championship on a pole, 
and similar to the ladder match, the idea was to climb the pole and retrieve the object. The most infamous of these was Viagra on a pole. That's right, Viagra. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> stop putting things on poles. That is the worst idea in pro wrestling. Just stop it. Number three, the bra and panties match. This one is, oh my god. So the idea of bra and panties match is that you are to strip your opponent down to her bra and panties. If you do this successfully, you win the match. WWE's women's wrestling has come a long way. Titles changed hands in bra and panties matches. What the fuck? <laughs> this, they were only doing these a few, just like maybe 10 or so years ago. So we're not far removed from this at all. Number two, the original shark cage match. Don't worry about what the shark cage matches are now. We're going to talk about the original. 1976, NWA Big Time Wrestling. We had Don Kent versus Chief J Strongbow. The loser of this match leaves town. And the match is contested in this tiny little fucking shark cage that could barely fit both men inside it. There are no clear rules. We, we don't know exactly how someone is going to win or lose. We do know that there's pinfalls. You know, you're going to pin your opponent and they lose. But they're both trapped in this tiny little shark cage where they can both barely stand or move. And this match went on for about 40 minutes. You can't watch it in its entirety. But just the idea of this. 40 minutes of these two massive guys barely able to move while trapped in this tiny little shark cage. Oh my god, that would be terrible to watch. <laughs> and number one, the reverse battle royal. So a battle royal is a very famous concept in pro wrestling. There's just a lot of guys in the ring. You're eliminated by being thrown over the top rope to the outside and the winner is the last man standing. The reverse battle royal is the other way around. You start outside of the ring, and getting in the ring is the object. TNA did a lot of these, and what it amounts to are wrestlers just kind of standing around, clearly able to get into the ring, but not. Just kind of looking at it. Or coming up with some excuse not to get in. Like, guys just clearly walking past it. Usually what TNA did is they'd have, like, 30 people and the first 10 into the Battle Royal qualify for round two. Which is now a regular over-the-top Battle Royal. What is the point of the reverse Battle Royal? Whoever can get into the ring quickest. It's so stupid. Like I said, it just amounts to guys standing around. Look at this picture. How many of these people can just, just get in the ring? Instead, they're brawling. Like, what's the point of this? This is so fucking stupid. So stupid. And they are, in my estimation, the five worst gimmick matches of all time. Just terrible. So, alright guys. Alright.
We're going to take a short little break now. Listen to a song. We're going to watch some ads. You know what it is. Sound good? Does this sound good to you, Jumpin' Jeff? Yep. Excellent. The song this week is by Cheap Pop. They're a wrestling-themed punk band. This is from the digital album In Gorilla. And it is called JBL's Flask. We'll look at some more material right after this. And this little shot, protein that helps your muscles recover with none of the mess. Woo! Woo! You need fuel in a bottle protein shots. This little bottle helps with muscle fatigue and costs less than other protein options. Woo! Fuel in a bottle power shots. It puts the woo in my woo! Wow, the stinger! Timmy, I'm from the Dream Come True Fantasy Contest. You ready to wrestle? You bet! Mom! Dad! It's really him! Hold on! Hold on! Okay, now I'm ready. It looks so real. Don't count on Sprite to do anything but quench your thirst. On the plains of Africa, one would find the following. The herbivore, or plant-eater, the carnivore, or meat-eater, and the boyardivore known as mankind of the WWF. Have a nice day! He's never without his overstuffed beef ravioli and his call... Unmistakable. Chef Boyardee overstuffed beef ravioli definitely feeds the need. It's the perfect ravioli for all mankind. And we are back to look at some more of the worst of professional wrestling. This next one is actually a rare example of a terrible wrestler being given a fantastic gimmick. And now this is going to be maybe not controversial, but there are a few people that are going to be pissed off by what they think I might be insinuating here. 
This is the Sandman. Now, hold on. I know that there are a lot of fans of the Sandman. And to you, I just asked to hear me out here. Before you jump to conclusions here, I'm not about to shit on this guy entirely. Like I said, he had a great gimmick. And one thing that you can never take away from the Sandman is that only he could have made this character work. That's, a, that's something you can never take away from him. He, is a, he was great at portraying this character. And in his own right, he was a legend. So, let's just have a look at the Sandman, okay? The Sandman. One of the faces of ECW. He was considered an icon of hardcore wrestling. This guy's character, he was a chain-smoking, beer-drinking, barroom brawler type. He gave the impression of a genuine street fighter. And with ECW featuring a lot of blood and guts and weapons in their hardcore-style product, the Sandman, he fit right in. He fit in so well that he was actually a five-time world champion in ECW, more than anybody else. And you know what? He really fit at the top of that card. That's something I will say positively about the Sandman. His character, his character embodied what ECW was all about, just going your own way and being an outlaw. I like that about the Sandman. However... As a wrestler, oh my god, he is fucking awful. He's a terrible wrestler. This guy, he was genuinely very unfit, genuinely out of shape. He would often get gassed just minutes into his matches. He would get gassed on his way to the fucking ring. He could barely take a bump, and he was extremely inanimate in just everything, particularly selling offense. He was terrible. A lot of what he did relied on the use of weapons. Notably, his Singapore cane, or kendo stick, whatever you want to call it. Which he would lay in quite stiff to other wrestlers. But like I said, despite how awful the Sandman was, he was a multi-time world champion. He was a very popular wrestler, and he is now considered a legend, at least in his little niche. It's not my style of thing, but the Sandman deserves all the credit in the world for being a legend in his own little hardcore world of wrestling. It goes to show that sometimes the right gimmick is all that matters, and the Sandman's legacy certainly proves it. So there you go, I'm not going to shit on the Sandman. He was a bad wrestler, and I think that even a lot of Sandman's biggest fans would admit that as a wrestler... He was kind of terrible. But in his own way, he was a compelling character. I don't know how interested I personally was in the character, but for its time, and especially its place, might have been the perfect character. Next one, let's talk about the inverse. A great wrestler stuck with an awful gimmick. This guy is Dustin Rhodes. He's the eldest son of... Of Dusty Rhodes, a man who was considered to be one of the most influential and powerful figures in the history of professional wrestling, definitely within modern history of professional wrestling. Just lighting my cigarettes. So, 
When Dustin first broke into pro wrestling in 1988, there was a certain chip on his shoulder, an expectation that was impossible to live up to. For the first few years of his career, Dustin more or less floated between wrestling companies. He found some more success towards the early mid-90s in WCW. This is where his father Dusty also worked. He picked up the United States Championship during that run, but in 1995, Dustin Rhodes signed a contract with the WWF, and it was in that August when Dustin would debut as this guy, Gold Dust. He was kind of um, an Oscar come to life, I guess. He was draped in gold, complete with this gold makeup and blonde wig. Goldust was a mysterious, melodramatic, kind of sexually perverse figure. He would often flirt with his opponents or exhibit some kind of lewd behavior, thereby stealing victories with mind games. The gimmick intentionally hitting on a homoerotic nerve in an attempt to get a negative reaction. Goldust was the heel, he was a villain, and his antics grew more bizarre with each week. Groping himself would then become groping his opponents. Uh, <laughs> Dustin Rhodes, he was very uncomfortable with the gimmick. Very uncomfortable. But he still gave it his best effort, because that was the worth work ethic of Dustin Rhodes. Hats off to him. In a match at WrestleMania 12, a match with Razor Ramon, Goldust had his ring attire torn off, revealing women's lingerie beneath. It, I, I, I don't get it. Goldust was a prominent wrestler for a number of years, while Dustin Rhodes, the person, battled with substance abuse. In December of 1997, the Goldust character evolved into this. The artist formerly known as Goldust. Knowing what Dustin was going through in this period of his life, this just makes me sad. Like, Dustin's personal life, and then this, it just makes me sad. During this run, Vince McMahon actually talked Dustin down from getting breast augmentation. Dustin wanted to do that for this gimmick. Some believe he was going above and beyond with this gimmick just to prove he was better than it. But the problem is the more he put effort he put into Goldust, the more Goldust was going to be promoted, the more miserable Dustin was going to be, and as we saw, as we would see, the worst his substance abuse would get. So we're going to jump years ahead now. Dustin was in and out of WWE and still very much, like I just said, struggling with substance, struggling with these addictions, these demons. He found himself a job in TNA, and in 2007, he debuted the gimmick Black Rain. This was, uh, I guess it was anti-gold dust. Uh, he had kind of nondescript magical powers. It, awful. But he also had a tag team partner, Relic, which is killer, spelled backwards. And Relic was... 
imaginary, but also real, but it's actually not quite clear what was going on. But then, Black Rain, he was revealed to be just a figment of Dustin Rhodes' imagination, which meant that Relic was a figment of Black Rain's imagination, who was a figment of Goldust's imagination, which is like... This is way too complicated for professional wrestling. Like, it doesn't need to be this complicated or silly. So, you know what? Relic doesn't matter. Black Rain doesn't matter. This is just the worst fucking gimmick. Like, Goldust was bad. In an attempt to create an anti-Goldust, Dustin Rhodes created something even more incredibly stupid. Dustin went to rehab following this run. Well, actually, at the end of this run, before this run with Tina was over, he was already in rehab. Allegedly, that is. There's never been any confirmation, but he has been living clean and doing very well since then, so there is no reason to doubt that he did go to rehab. It's just worth pointing out that it's never actually been confirmed. It's just like an assumption that is seen probably mostly correct. Dustin now. Dustin Rhodes is a wrestler and a coach with AEW. He turns 52 this month. And right now, he might actually be doing the best work of his entire career. As a professional wrestler, an in-ring worker... Dustin Rhodes has oddly aged like wine. He's at his absolute best right now. A lot of people would argue. This next guy. Oh my god, this next one. <laughs> oh my god. So, this is Mark Henry. He was billed as the world's strongest man. He was a legitimate strongman and a record-setting powerlifter... So the World's Strongest Man gimmick was kind of perfect. But that wasn't his first gimmick. A gimmick that he had prior to this, and debuting in 1999, <laughs> was Sexual Chocolate. A ladies' man character that over time evolved into a sex addict. <laughs> sexual Chocolate. I wish I was making this shit up. I'd say you can't make this shit up, but they literally did, right? <laughs> During a live television segment, Mark Henry attended a sex therapy session where he admitted to losing his virginity at age eight to his own sister, with whom he also had sex with just two days prior. <laughs> this overcoming... Oh my god, I can't believe it. It actually happened. Oh my god. This was when wrestling was popular, too. Like, unreal. This overcoming of addiction to sex became an ongoing storyline that played out over the course of a few months that then became a few... Uh, sorry, a few weeks that then became a few months. And it all culminated with Mark Henry romancing and impregnating an elderly veteran wrestler named Mae Young. Mae Young would later give birth to a hand. Just, just a hand. This entire thing was utterly irredeemable from the beginning. A, a sexual chocolate? Are you fucking kidding me? 
Do you know this guy? This is Ric Flair. And no, 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 hang on. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not about to tell you that Ric Flair was a bad wrestler. I, I, I would never say that. Ric Flair is pretty much the greatest wrestler of all time. And he, he's one of my favorites of all time as well. Ric Flair is the absolute greatest who ever lived. I'm going to show you how talent is not hereditary, okay? This is David Flair. Though he would work in early TNA, he is most remembered for his work in the final years of WCW. He was the first bad wrestler that I remember being a bad wrestler. David Flair was constantly, and I mean always, he never got better, lost in the ring. Regardless of what level of veteran he shared the ring with, he was lost in the ring. Even following extensive training with his own father, who as stated, Ric Flair was the greatest wrestler who ever lived, David still could not improve at all in any regard. He had zero charisma, and well, I guess he bumped fine, he could physically you know, take a bump, okay, he had no sense of psychology, no sense of psychology when it came to either match layouts, or audience interaction, anything, he had no idea what the hell he was doing, and once more, his father is Rick fucking Flair, just, just to stress how bad David Flair really was, because I feel like the clips that I'm no doubt showing right now, just aren't doing a good enough job, if David Flair had any other last name, like let's say he had a different father, he was David Smith, we'll say, he would still be among the most talentless wrestlers that were ever promoted by a major wrestling company. Like, e even if he wasn't being compared to his father, he would still be one of the worst. That's how fucking bad this guy is. L like... You have no idea. David Flair was bad. Luckily, some of Ric Flair's children were actually quite talented. Such as Charlotte. I feel like Charlotte Flair is a little overrated, and probably a lot overrated. But she's a good wrestler. She's a very good wrestler. David Flair, however, was not a good wrestler. <laughs> he was not a good wrestler at all. Staying on the topic of wrestlers from famous families, I would like you to meet this <clears throat> lovely lady, Nia Jax. At the time of recording, she's an active wrestler on WWE's Raw brand. She is from the, I can never pronounce this name, the Anawi family. Text on the screen. Cousin to the likes of Roman Reigns, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. She has been promoted as quite strong in her WWE career, where she has won several titles and has been consistently portrayed as a dominant force in the women's division. And she has also received negative criticism to the nth degree. She is widely regarded as a particularly unsafe wrestler. There are quite a number of examples of this, and as such, a number of wrestlers that were hurt in matches with Nia Jax. However, I'd like to focus on just two in particular.
And these are the most often cited examples, but nonetheless, they're the most often cited, I guess, just be because they're just really glaring, glaring examples that just paint Naya in a very bad light, which, before we get into this, she should be painted in such a light. She's very dangerous. So, the first of these, November 2018, an episode of Monday Night Raw, Nia Jax delivered a real punch to the face of Becky Lynch. One thing you need to understand is that in wrestling, even if you're throwing a worked punch, so a punch that isn't real, you don't close your fist all the way. She struck Becky Lynch in the face with a closed fist, a legitimate closed fist to the face. These are very early training mistakes that it's amazing that someone at her level makes that mistake. This punch would break Becky's nose. It would give Becky a concussion and it would cause her to bleed profusely. And reportedly, Nia Jax made no attempt to apologize to Becky Lynch following this incident or even check to see if she was okay. She kind of just went home and hasn't apologized for this. We're going to jump forward a few years to January. Sorry, January. How did I read that as January? To May 2020. When Nia Jax carelessly threw Kyrie Hojo, a far smaller wrestler, into the corner of the ring. Kyrie's head, the back of her head, whiplashed off the turnbuckle and gave her a concussion. After spending a couple of weeks on the shelf, they rematched, which, as an aside, is a dumb idea. If she was just injured in a match with this lady, why put her back in the ring with the same lady in her first match back? In this rematch, Nia Jax threw Kyrie face first, directly into the ringside steel steps. Fairly hard was this shove, and at a very close distance to what is legitimate steel. Like, you can see in this picture how close she was and the force that she pushes her. Kyrie, once again, suffered a concussion, and the corner of the steel stairs actually gave her a deep cut on her face that was very close to her eye. Had her eye hit, she probably would have lost it. For this, Nia Jax was punished with a tag team title run. Mm. So Nia Jax hurts people and is rewarded. And look, there's just one last story that I'd like to tell about Nia Jax, this awful careless wrestler. In 2018, WWE held the Super Showdown event, and this was held at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. At this show, Melbourne's own Buddy Murphy, aka Matt Silva, won the Cruiserweight Championship to become the very first Australian champion in company history. Nia Jax could not help but bitch about it on Twitter. You see, she was born in Sydney. She grew up between Hawaii and California and had never really made any mention of being born in Australia, nor really cared, until this exact moment when 
someone born in Australia won a title, then Nia Jax had to show everybody that she was born in Sydney, so technically she was the first and not Matt Silver. And to give her all the attention, because why give it to Matt Silver? It was her accomplishment after all. And just, mmm, lovely person. That's my opinion. But say, Jumpin' Jeff Farmer, would you say that Nia Jax is a spiteful bitch? Yep. Okay, so for this next one, I just want you to take a look at this image. <laughs> just go, just take a look at it. <laughs> just soak it in. This is the goon. <laughs> he is an angry hockey player who was, quote, kicked out of every league. <laughs> Goody was around for a few months in 1996 and disappeared. I think he was only around for three or four months. Very short-lived. And this gimmick is one of the worst that I've ever seen. Particularly memorable, not just with me, but with the wider wrestling community, just for how silly the idea was. What the fuck were they thinking? An angry hockey player. <laughs> oh my god. Alright, so, uh, these next two, fuck, oh my god, okay, so, alright, this is Billy and Chuck, Billy Gunn, Chuck Palumbo, and their manager, Rico Constantino, Billy and Chuck, much like Goldust, was a gimmick designed to provoke homophobia, Though it was never outwardly stated, it was heavily implied that Billy and Chuck were in a sexual relationship. They were gay. <gasps> you can see they have these matching, these matching, these matching red outfits and that affectionate way that they look at each other. Their manager, Rico, was actually their personal stylist. Playing again into a gay stereotype. Over the course of roughly 12 months, Billy and Chuck were actually one of WWE's most highly promoted tag teams, with two reigns as the World Tag Team Champions. As far as working between the ropes were concerned, Billy Gunn and Chuck Palumbo were actually quite a good tag team, just as far as pure tag team psychology is concerned. Together, they were actually very good. But that's overshadowed greatly by this gimmick. You see, they weren't really traditional wrestling heels. That is to say that they didn't cheat or really cut corners a whole lot. Towards the end of the run, they did more so, but for the bulk of it, they didn't really do that too much. But they were still heels. Like I said, they were heavily implied to be gay, and that made them villains. In the year that was, 2002. <sighs> On a September episode of SmackDown, the two hosted a live commitment ceremony in the ring, wherein they in, wherein, oh my god, just, let's just, 
take that in for a minute. I'm sorry. Billy and Chuck really take it out of me. Like, I can't believe they actually did this. <laughs> During the commitment ceremony, they admitted that their relationship had the entire time been a publicity stunt, and that they were actually heterosexual. Though in saying this, they did also claim and take a firm stance that there is nothing wrong with being gay. The crowd, who had not liked this segment at all up to this point, responded very positively to that particular statement, that there is nothing wrong with being gay. It's 2002, that's the kind of response you would expect. However, nobody in the ring, nor on commentary, appeared to be anticipating this reaction. They were not expecting a positive reaction. It really genuinely feels like, and once again, I must remind you, this was the year 2002, that this line about there being nothing wrong with being gay was intended to solicit a negative reaction. There is a certain awkwardness that follows the delivery of this line, but more so the, the reaction to, from the live audience to this line, there's a certain awkwardness that I find very telling. Nobody was expecting that. It's kind of amazing. Oh my, ugh. You should watch this segment just for that reaction. There is this beautifully awkward moment that's just unreal, that it's so clear they all expected this to be booed. Oh my god. <laughs> this whole thing also annoyed Glad. They are, in case you don't know, they're, they're like an LGBT anti-defamation body. They actually promoted and personally approved of this angle under what they later claimed were false pretenses. Here is what a GLAD spokesperson had to say on the matter. The WWE lied to us two months ago when they promised that Billy and Chuck would come out and wed on air. So WWE worked a gay anti-defamation league to get them to promote this fucking segment. Can you believe it? Sometimes wrestling gimmicks are so bad that they are just fucking embarrassing. Though, and I'm, believe me, I am ashamed to admit this, as insensitive as Billy and Chuck honestly were, it's, <laughs> it just gets worse. So, ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Eugene, the special needs wrestler. Oh yes, Vincent Kennedy McMahon actually went there. Portrayed by Nick Dinsmore, Eugene debuted on the April 5th edition of Monday Night Raw in 2004. He was introduced as a slow-witted, easily excited, simple nephew of Raw General Manager Eric Bischoff. The character started off, as you might expect, as a babyface, the good guy who was fighting off who were effectively bullies. We'll, we'll just call them bullies. That was kind of what was going on. And he was using the moves of famous wrestlers that he had seen on television. This was literally, like quite literally, a mentally handicapped wrestling gimmick. I genuinely wish I was joking. It's... 
It's fucking horrible. And I'm not the only one that thought so, because eventually, Eugene found himself sharing a ring with Olympic gold medalist Kurt Angle. And Kurt Angle slapped the shit out of Eugene. Kurt wasn't slapping Nick Dinsmore, I don't think. He was frustrated and slapping this fucking gimmick. He was obviously not a fan, and few were. He was also featured on the second ECW One Night Stand event, where Eugene was beaten up by our friend we spoke about before, the Sandman, and he was booed out of the building. This is when Eugene, the special needs wrestler, became the butt end of jokes, spending the final 18 months of his WWE career portraying the dim-witted, easily defeated wrestler. Without question, Eugene, like I said, was a mentally handicapped wrestler. Okay? That, that, that's just all there is to it. I, you can Sure, there are ways of interpreting this, but Eugene was a mentally challenged wrestler. That, that's just what this was, and it's fucking horrible. In the years that have followed Nick Dinsmore's portrayal of Eugene, both he and WWE have vehemently defended the gimmick. Dinsmore has chosen to portray the character as a positive force, that Eugene was somehow uh, empowering. You know, he was, he was there sticking up for these kids and representing these kids with special needs. These wrestling fans, I should say, with special needs. WWE has themselves taken the out-of-context defense. That, you know, how Eugene is portrayed isn't exactly how the character played out. Despite the fact that how Eugene is portrayed was exactly how the character played out. I personally find the gimmick to be utterly indefensible and just fucking reprehensible. Here we are 17 years later, and I find Eugene utterly embarrassing. When I was a kid, it made me uncomfortable then, and now I'm still very uncomfortable. Like, how is this a fucking thing? Seriously. Like, <laughs> oh my god. Like, here we go. I seriously think that things like this, characters such as Eugene who served no distinct purpose but to offend, killed the general interest in pro wrestling. Why did Eugene exist? What audience was this character even fucking intended for? By my estimation, Eugene was just there to mock the handicapped. Unlike, for example, South Park's Timmy. Now, Timmy, this was a character that said something. A foil to real societies. He told us something about our treatment and our perception of the handicapped in the real world. Eugene, he tells us nothing. It is, objectively speaking, the worst gimmick in professional wrestling history. Eugene literally existed to make fun of the intellectually handicapped. And for that reason, Fuck Eugene. This was never a good idea. This was horrible and downright inhumane. I'm sorry to really get so 
I guess, emotional about Eugene, but I really find it deeply offensive that this was ever a thing. Especially from an industry like professional wrestling that I otherwise get so much enjoyment out of. For this to be a thing. Fuck Eugene. We have countless more bad wrestling gimmicks and shitty wrestlers that we could look at. But I'm holding on to those for a sequel. This is where we're going to end off for today. Only looking at just a handful of the worst professional wrestling has to offer us. Trust me, there is more than enough here for multiple sequels. So if you like this, we will definitely come back at some point for a second round. And we are also going to be back a little more immediately with the Minecraft segments. Right after this. This is Cheap Pop once again with Brian Daniel Bryanson. I completely fucked up the name of that song. Oh my god, I'm an idiot. Daniel Brian Danielson. <laughs> Enjoy this second song. It's another short one. We'll be back right after this. Hey, Hulkamaniacs, you proved to the Hulkster that you're a true Hulkamaniac by renting my new movie, Suburban Commando, one of the greatest movies the Hulkster's ever appeared in. Now I'm going to tell you about another big hit, the Hulk Hogan WWF Wrestling Challenge Game. By dialing 1-900-454-HULK, you can hear my daily power pack messages, giving you the latest scoops on the WWF. Plus, you can play my Hulk Hogan WWF Wrestling Challenge Game, where I'll be your manager for the match of your life. 
as you wrestle against the biggest and the baddest dudes in the WWF, like Ric Flair and The Undertaker and others. You could win and be eligible for a drawing for a great prize, including a grand prize, an all-expense-paid trip to meet me in person. Remember, the cost of the call is $1.49 for the first minute and $0.99 cents for each additional minute. If you're under 18, make sure you have your mom or your dad's permission before calling. What you gonna do when Suburban Commando and then Hulk Hogan WWF Wrestling Challenge game run wild on you? Minecraft. 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 And here we are again with this Minecraft segment. So, what's the deal with this? Just in case you don't know, I have made a hardcore survival world that I have taken to calling my mental health world. Because, as I explained in the previous Sunday episode, Minecraft, I find, is a very therapeutic, cathartic game that helps me through my depression very much so. This is my hardcore world, meaning that if I die, that's it. It's over. The game is just done. No respawning, it's done. So until that should happen, I am giving weekly updates on the status of this world. Here is the first picture. Where we left off. This is how my base is looking right now. You can see my farm, my house, I'm standing on my little outlook tower, and there's a path you can see right in the distance leading outside of my house. What I was working on right before we left off last time. So, another thing I should mention that I did last time, I made a bunch of really big maps. Bigger yet, bigger yet. Now I have the biggest map. And I want to explore my entire surroundings. Fill up that big map. I did not do that this week. So instead, let's have a look at what I did do. This is a little shack that leads down into my mine. I figured, you know, I can mine. That's what I'll do this week. Mining is the most cathartic thing in Minecraft, in my opinion. Just watching, you know, a big, when you're doing some strip mining, watching a big chunk of just rock, stone, whatever you want to call it, disappear. Very cathartic. So this leads down to my mine. This is right outside, right, right outside, right inside the door, just a little staircase going down. And we see it leads into an intersection. This is like, this is how I like designing my maps when I do my mines. Um, just lead in several directions and just tunnel, tunnel, tunnel. Some of the points end up connecting. Hey, whatever. It's just a big mine system. And it, here's just another intersection. It leads down, all the way down into a big mine shaft. Um, on my way there, you can see in this picture, I noticed on my map, you can see a little, just a little white dot there, a couple of series of dots that clearly indicate where my base is. Now, maybe if I venture out further, I won't be able to see my base, but that was one of my big fears about this large map, that I'd have to make my base bigger just to be able to see where I was going when I came back home. This gave me some hope that they, that may not be an issue. So, 
I mined and I mined and I mined. You can see some slimes in the background. I get a lot of them. I mined and I mined and eventually I just got sick of mining. So I went back up to my home and I made some dynamite. I had, a, I had gathered a fair amount of gunpowder and I could easily go get some sand. I live right near some sand and I could make some gunpowder. So I made a couple of blocks of gunpowder. In this picture, you can only see, I think, three of them. Yep, only three. But I made quite a bit of dynamite. I think I made about 12 bits of dynamite. And as you can see, I put a little, dug a little hole into the wall. And I started stacking the dynamites. Here's where I ended it. And I proceeded to light the dynamite. I almost died after lighting this dynamite, despite being quite a fair distance away from it. I actually think I encountered a bug. Look at this. The entire area blew up. Now, I only used 12 bits of TNT, and they were mostly next to each other. The idea is that one would blow up, create a hole, and throw the others across the hole and make a big cavity. The size of this cavity, we'll move over to the next picture, as you can see, is pretty fucking huge. And I got a lot of resources from this, so it ended up working out fine, but yeah, I definitely encountered a bug because this explosion, it blew up a bit too much. <laughs> I had to make several trips to make more torches just to light this entire area. I encountered quite the bug here. And it was to my benefit. As you can see in this picture, I got quite quite a bit of materials. And this wasn't even at the end, right? I hadn't even gathered all the materials that I had uncovered. I found quite a lot. This is just all that I had in my base at the time of taking the screenshot. There were a lot more. <laughs> Trust me, there were a lot more. But because of that, I actually ran out of space. So as you can see here, I broke my farm. I decided, you know what, I'll move my farm somewhere else, and instead I made this whole area, next picture, a place for my materials, for my precious materials. So I have a lot of iron there, a hell of a lot of iron. God, I could have used that when I was building my fence, but now I have a lot of iron. I have a fair amount of gold, which whenever I go to the nether, still haven't even done that yet. <laughs> I can make some trades. And I also found quite a few diamonds. No emeralds. I don't even think you can mine for emeralds anymore. But I found some diamonds down there too. I have a lot of stuff now. And I've got a place for it. And that's always, always a good thing. This brings us to the last picture. This is me burning down the forest surrounding my path. Because I have decided... This path is going to lead towards my farm. I have started digging out, uh, just, just flattening the land, I guess. Just digging out the little hill there, flattening the land. All of those trees are actually clear now. I haven't taken a newer screenshot than this. But I am basically just making, clearing out the land, and I'm going to build a big farm away from my house. I think that'd be a neat idea. I've never done that, build a separate farm, so I'm gonna build a huge farmland with a little farmhouse there, everything I need, 
So basically farming is going to be a full day long task in the future. Why am I doing this? Well, why not? I like procrastinating. And when I procrastinate in Minecraft, I always feel mentally a lot healthier. So this is where I left off. Expect updates on this whole thing next week. Even if I die, I'll give you the update up until the time that I die. And that is Minecraft. And that is also the show for this week, you lovely, lovely people. I will be back next Thursday, as always. Until then, have a great week. Why don't you go buy a block of chocolate and eat it all in one night? You have earned it. See you next week, guys. Bye. We are dead. So the people are the people as you've ever seen. We write songs. No one likes. Except for people who Pin me right there in the middle of the ring. There's always a lesson to be learned every time you step in the ring. And Motley Cruz, you taught me one very good lesson. You took me out of my game plan. I couldn't wrestle my kind of match. Believe me, I learned and I learned well. It don't take me long. Next time I get you in the ring, you're mine. New tactics, new game plan. You're mine. <laughs>